Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Enterprise Sales Development Podcast, brought to you by Science Technologies. We interview outbound leaders at fast growth businesses to learn their secrets and bring you actionable insights. Thanks for joining us this week. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Enterprise Sales Development. I'm Eric Quanstrom, CMO at Science. And I'm Caroline Maloney, the Director of Sales Training and Enablement at Science. Very close to home on this one, Caroline. We've got our CEO of Science Technologies, John Gerard, for this episode. What a guy. Cool. He's one cool CEO, I'd say. He really is. You know, John and I have worked side by side, hand in hand for almost five years now. Prior to Science, he was the CEO at companies like Clickability, Zingle, was actually a, a vice president at Connectifier, which was acquired by LinkedIn. He's kind of like got that pedigree, if you will, of being involved in a lot of different businesses. And oh, by the way, you know, since arriving at Science, we've more than 10x this company. So a decent track record. Yeah, yeah. Not, nothing too nothing too huge, right? No, John's wonderful. And he really dives deep into principles and the psychology behind being a CEO and how he's helped to create founding principles and core beliefs at companies that he's worked for. Probably my favorite part too is the design thinking. Such such great psychology, especially if you yourself are an executive leader. For sure. And John is fond of, and you'll hear it on this interview, calling himself the world's most unlikely salesperson. <laughs> <laughs> so he's very relatable too, I think, to a lot of the folks in, in the sales development audience on you know where he enters the conversation. It's a wonderful listen. Can't wait to get to this one. John, it is so good to sit down with you. I'm like most excited about this one, I think. Thank you. I'm really glad to hear that. <laughs> I, you know, it's funny. I was telling Eric this, like, I feel like I, there, there's so much left to talk about. I feel like I still don't know a lot about, you know, your background and what you've done, where you come from. Can you, can you like walk us through some of your experience leading up to coming on as the CEO of science? Yeah, sure. I'd be happy to. So I think, you know, in a lot of ways, I would consider myself to be the world's most unlikely salesperson. And the reason I say that is um, I've always been interested in technology. I've always been, you know, probably a classically was a nerd back in, in high school and, and, and maybe a little bit in college too, and maybe a little bit after that. I don't know. Depends on who you ask. And, and I actually really didn't like the concept of sales and selling. And I, I think that was because like many of us, I'd had bad experiences with salespeople and I sort of had this idea you know, the prototypical used car salesman that is trying to sell you something that you don't need for more money than you have, and it doesn't work as promised, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And, and I, you know, it, it took me a long time to understand that that is a kind of sales. It's the sort of extractor sale where the only way that I can win is to take from you is for you to lose. Zero-sum selling, you know, is another way to think of it. So, you know, like a lot of us, I think I had a, I had this sort of very negative opinion of, of selling. And then, you know, lo and behold, um, after graduating from college, spending a few years thinking I might want to be a lawyer, I worked in a law firm for two years and figured out I did not want to be a lawyer. Uh, that was that was a very useful experience, experience and experiment. So I started a company with some friends and and I and it was a tech business and we uh, we built some stuff and raised some money in Silicon Valley. And, you know, I was very much of the opinion that if we build it, they will come. Like we've got this incredible thing and all we need to do is put it up, put it out there and just sit and wait. 
and watch the money roll in. And it turns out that's not what happened, <laughs> right? So, so you know, we had to we had to figure out like, well, what would it actually mean to try to sell this instead of just putting it up and seeing what happens? And that was a big turning point for me. I, I got exposed to this idea that if you have something that's truly of value to the people you're interacting with, the, the prospect on the other side, that really will make their life easier, make their business better, make them more money, help them save costs. You're actually doing a service to them to share with them authentically what it is you do and how you do it and package it up in a way that they can understand and interpret. And then if you do business together, you're actually doing a service to them and you're, you're helping. And that's the, you know, that's the value creation uh, version of, of selling. So rather than extracting, I am helping to create more value. And then everybody gets a piece of a bigger pie, including the person who bought it. You know, they get something that's worth to them a lot more than they paid for it. And I get money that's worth more to me than what I'm giving away. Like that's the perfect transaction. So it, I, I, I maybe came a little late to that game, but once I realized that it, it sort of changed everything in terms of my belief about what makes for a good business, what kind of business person and entrepreneur I want to be, you know, how can I fit this, this kind of life, the entrepreneurial life into my principles as a human, right? It all, it all sort of came together around that, that one key or core concept. And, uh, and now I guess, fast forward to your, uh, CEO ship, if you will, at, at science, I actually think it'd be interesting to share a little bit about the science way and some of that belief becoming somewhat of our corporate path. If sure. You will. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that, absolutely. So Eric, as you know, cause we were both working on this at the same time around 2017 or so, you know, we needed to sort of figure out how to weave some of these concepts into the, into the DNA that was already here. Um, not because people weren't uh, on board with the idea, but because it hadn't really been codified, you know, it hadn't really been sort of drilled into the, the or institutionalized, I guess. So yeah, the science way, you know, it was kind of a little bit of a manifesto written back in 2017 that, that really incorporates a lot of these, these core concepts, this idea that, you know, selling can actually be a noble profession, which really flies in the face of a lot of things that many people think about sales and about selling, but I think absolutely animates and informs everything that we do here today. You know, we don't work with clients that don't have demonstrable evidence of extreme value that they're providing to their client base. And there are a few ways to test for that, but you know, we turn clients away when they don't pass those tests. Like we, we will work with clients that really, really, really provide extraordinary value to the clients that they serve outsized value, value that makes their clients stand up and say, this is the most amazing experience I've ever had. Again, when you do that, if you align things that way, you're actually in the business of being a service to the world um, and creating value rather than extracting value. And that, that's a really big deal. So, so you know, science as a company, sometimes we've called that a, a virtuous business model. It's a model where nobody has to lose in order for the stake, all the stakeholders to win. You know, we talk about the four winners here at science when we do our job right, right? We, we talk about science as a business wins. Our employees win because they share in the upside. Our clients win because they get more sales, more business. And because we're working with clients who have exceptional products and are authentically great at what they do, their prospects win because they get hooked up. There's a matchmaking there where that prospect says, you know what, this is so great. I'm so glad that this was this connection was made. Now, look, that doesn't always happen, but that's the goal. And that's the way we orient all the work that we do. And, and you know, a lot of that 
I think came out of that original thinking, Eric, that you and I did, you know, back in 2017. And, and a lot of those themes, you know, they show up still every day to this day. Mm-hmm. And how did you think through that? Was it like a series of workshops and brain shares and whiteboards with tons of writing on it? Like what, what were some of those early days like if you could, um, if you could share there? You know, honestly, I think I think it was more of the and Eric, you would have to comment on this too, because you were there, but sort of the lightning bolt inspiration type of a thing where once this all sort of became clear that this is what we're doing and this is where we're headed, all this stuff just lined up perfectly. Like if this is what we're going to do and we're really, really good at it, here are the rules and they're really straightforward. You know, this, this sort of comes out of a little bit out of uh, you know, carrying principles along with you. You know, one, one of my favorite books in recent years is Ray Dalio's Principles. And, you know, agree or disagree with his specific principles, the message that, you know, you probably ought to have some when it comes to principles is is pretty great. I, I, you know, the nice thing about that is that if you if you have those and you you apply them, you know, I, I think of those, I, I, the, the principles and these kinds of principles like we're talking about here, you know, if I'm going to sell and participate in business in this way, it has to be responsible ethical selling. It has to be value creation selling, not value extraction selling. The nice thing about having those principles is you get to think them through ahead of time. And then and then decisions are easy because once you get to that point where, hey, we got to figure out how to put together a manifesto to say what science is all about, we've already decided because we've already figured out a long time ago what our principles are. And now it's just applying them to the problem at hand, right? So it's it's kind of a way to pre-decide all of the important stuff. You know, you don't have to hem and haw about it. And and by the way, I will say for sure that if anything that we were doing at science at the time depended on violating those principles, I'm not sure science would be here. I, I wouldn't be here anymore. Um, I don't know that science would be here either. Like that's how important that aspect of of of, of the you know the thinking that gets put into this is. Yeah, I would just offer up the comment that there was a little bit of necessity, mother of invention back then, because we were an entirely new management team that was, you know, coming in and effectively moving the organization to a place that it had never been before and needed those guiding principles in that map, if you will, yeah. going forward. So Yeah, and I, I would, you know, to credit the folks that were here slogging it out when we got here, they were already behaving that way. They just didn't have it written down and and articulated quite yet. And honestly, that was the thing that probably attracted me to it all the most. I was like, oh my gosh, this is a principal group of people that's working incredibly hard, doing the right thing at every turn. And, uh, you know, maybe if we clarify a few things and, and help bring a little more focus, focused energy to the, to the table, it might get exciting really fast. And indeed it did. Well, and I think that this is a perfect segue into some of the other things that I think are worth talking about, especially in light of, you know, the science way, core principles, guiding statements and or values that we believe to be true is the business that we're in is actually really hard. I mean, it's not a simple, easy, everyone can do it type of business. It's actually full of rejection. It's full of down moments. It's full of low conversion mm-hmm. rates. It's full of, you know, prospect irritation, you name it. There, There's a, a steady diet of like failure really mm-hmm. as part of the, the outbound managed services and all of its associated pieces. Wouldn't you agree? Oh yeah. No, I, I think that's a hundred percent right. And, and look, there's a, there's a lot kind of baked into what you just said. So First of all, it's undeniably hard and maybe the hardest motion that there is in sales. You know, at least in some interesting way, you know, if you want to get philosophical about it, 
it's the ultimate testing ground for a set of principles like how do you behave ethically like you know an ethical responsible call center service or outbound calling service doesn't that sound like an oxymoron a little bit well you know it turns out it isn't it turns out there is a way to do that so this is this is sort of sort of exciting in some ways it's like can you take this thing that's sort of the most extreme version of, of selling and actually apply these principles to it and, and succeed. And, you know, I, I would I would offer up, yes, you can. And also say, you know, I referenced my, my early view of, of sales being informed by, by uh, the, the idea of a used car salesman, right? And it turns out, I know this guy up in Portland, Oregon, who's one of the most amazing, genuine, authentic, loving people I've ever met. And he's extraordinarily good at what he does. And he's very responsible and very ethical. And he's a used car salesman. And it was so interesting to me to see that. That was actually another sort of seminal moment. It was like, wait a minute, I, I might have had it wrong. I got something wrong here, right? I got something wrong here. So that was that was pretty fascinating. And, and, and that, 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 there's sort of a, a version of this that is that, that's playing out here for us on the SDR side, right? So We've got people calling and potentially interrupting, right? Interrupting somebody's day. I get these calls too. And the, the immediate response for most people is, why am I being bothered right now? So, wow, starting from there, can you actually apply these principles and create value out of that conversation? Like that's, you know, some serious high level, you know, ninja stuff there to, to be able to pull it off and, and not to fake it, but to actually be able to pull it off pretty extraordinary. And I guess, you know, I, I would add one other thing, actually, as long as I'm, as long as I'm on a roll here, I think, you know, you also referenced this being one of the hardest things to do in sales, just from the, you know, the, the pure rejection standpoint, right? Like really, really difficult to, to deal with rejection, even, even if it doesn't happen 85% of the time, but when it does, wow, like that's, that's really tough. It also happens to be an unbelievably fantastic way to train and to learn and to develop resilience. So I don't know about you guys, but I think I didn't learn much resilience growing up. I think Western society, the U.S. in particular, we don't get a lot of training in doing hard things and pressing through. It just isn't really part of the culture in the same way that it is elsewhere. And I think that this is actually a, it's an opportunity for a lot of people, including me, when I was in a sales role, to really develop some of those skills that maybe we didn't get to develop early in our lives. And it, it, that's powerful, all that stuff. I, I like to tell people, and I think it is absolutely true, even if you never do anything in sales for the rest of your career, a year or two years here at Science doing this kind of work will change the outcome and the trajectory for your life. You know, you want to be an entrepreneur, you want to take some risks and do hard things and make calls to investors who don't want to give you their money and and try to uh, make it go that way. Well, you will be prepared to do that if you work here for a year or two. Uh, you know, you want to do the hard thing and, and apply to medical school and you don't know if you're going to make it or not. You, you'll be prepared to take that risk, take that chance, step up and give it a swing and, and not be devastated if you fail and keep going and eventually succeed. Like that's that's the kind of stuff that I think gets created when you do this kind of work and do it well. God, I love that. It's like a resiliency boot camp, right? It's, I mean, it it's is. And yeah. our reps, like, every day they're coming up against the zone of resistance, which, you know, is what you're describing. That initial moment when a prospect picks up the phone and they're like, why am I being interrupted? Right. right. It's that zone of resistance that our reps get every day. Speaking of our SDRs, I'm so curious if, if you wouldn't mind digging into the hybridization of our yeah. SDRs. 
source? Like where, where yeah. that came from? What, what was the genesis of that? And yeah, expanding on Sure. That. Yeah. This is kind of a, this is kind of an interesting thing. And I think it, it was, uh, it's, it's fair to say, you know, science can lay claim to being the, the place that this started, you know, I, I, 15 or so years ago, is that how long ago that the Aaron's book came out? Is that when it, when it happened about 15, I think it's like 18, what I, I want to say it was 2012 ish. Okay. All right. So about 10 years ago. Yeah. yeah. So Aaron Ross, who actually <laughs> turns out he and I were in the same freshman dorm at Stanford. This is really funny. So we, we have a, a long history together and, and somehow both ended up doing this outbound thing a little bit, but anyway, you know, so he's largely credited with popularizing the term sales specialization. It, it, it was something in the mix well before then, but I think he was somebody who helped really, you know, draw a circle around it and talk about what that meant. And what that meant at the time was, you know, the, the motion around prospecting and the motion around selling are really different. And when salespeople are asked to do both of those things, they tend to do neither of them very well. Or if they're really good at both, they, they run this sort of feast or famine cycle. So they spend one quarter closing all their business and they get to the next quarter with an empty pipe. And so they spend a quarter prospecting and selling nothing. And then the next quarter, they have a great quarter. And then the next one, they have a terrible one. So, you know, the, the fix for that was this specialization idea where you you have prospecting specialists who start the conversation. And that very you know, evolution in the sales space is what uh, gave rise to companies like Science, you know, doing that prospecting as a service on behalf of B2B sales organizations. The thought was, okay, if you can, if you can generate that sort of a, an opportunity by uh, breaking up these two very different jobs, are there actually different jobs inside of prospecting itself? I think that you know the answer turns out to be absolutely yes. And all you need to do is think of the best prospectors that you have in your organization and ask yourself, is that is the person, you know, is Joe who's extremely good in email, so clever, says all the right things, does the right research, personalizes it right, turns it around quickly, is he also your best caller? Probably not. You know, is is Susie, who's who's incredibly good on the phone and quick on her feet, and you know knows how to uh, to deal with a, a rejection and turn it around on the fly. Is she also, uh, you know, your best campaign, you know, template writer or strategist or your best email specialist? Probably not. So the idea then is, um, what if you further specialize, you subspecialize, and allow people who are extremely good at the written form to do that and only that. And people that are extremely good on the phones do that and only that. And there, you know, there's certainly some challenges to that. There's some drawbacks. But I think for us anyway, we've seen a really strong lift in what comes out of that if you do it right. We've also seen, not surprisingly, people are, are happier, that the SDRs are enjoying their jobs more. Like who doesn't like to do what, what you're good at, what they're good at? And I'll add to that, there's an interesting kind of a little twist in, in that story, which is, you know, conventionally, we've been told to work on your weaknesses, to level yourself up in the areas where, where you're not good. I, I, th I think that that's terrible advice. And there's a lot of evidence now that that's not the way to do things at all, that, that the way to do things is actually to work on and amplify your strengths and to become world class in just one thing or a couple of things that aren't often put together and then let other people help you fill the gaps on the weakness side. Right. So I don't need to be a utility player who's extremely good at everything. Maybe, just maybe, it would be a better idea for me to take the thing that I'm most passionate about, most interested in, and best at, 
and get even better at that. Yeah, I think the model actually probably originated with the the first split of research and the SDR function in general, right? Like where yep. the mind-numbing aspects of even if you have a data subscription or you know purchase the list or whatever, the the idea of people enriching that list or working that list or even compiling that list further those skill sets are almost completely divergent from folks that actually would be interacting with others um, on the that's fly. That's exactly right. Yeah, that's a really good point. And, and I think you know that goes to this sort of funny little area or aspect of prospecting that if you've never done it before, you sort of look at it and go, well, what's the big deal? I'll just send some emails to some people and see what happens, right? And everybody who goes down that path follows exactly the same trajectory and they discover you know, on their own all of these different subspecialties that you're describing, you know, research being one of those, Eric, that you're describing by doing it wrong and then figuring out, oh, I guess I need to do this differently. So, you know, anybody who starts down that path says, oh, I, I'll just send some emails. And then they think, well, how many, how many get the email addresses? You know what? I'll just buy a list. I'll do that. Okay. Bought a list. Let me send those. Well, those all bounced. And now I, my domain is, is wrecked. Okay. I got to do something else. So I guess I'm gonna have to research these. So they figure it out. Right. And, you know, it turns out, I think we've, we've written about this. There's, there are six major areas actually of prospecting that you have to do quite well in order to get any results, not to get good results, but to get greater than zero, you have to do at least, you know, let's call it B plus work across six different areas before you get to one response in your inbox. And that ends up being hard. And it's exactly the, the, the kind of thing that leads to this, this idea of subspecialization. So each of those six areas has a lot of nuance. And if you wanna be, you know, if you wanna, if you wanna drive yourself to, a, to an A minus or an A from that B plus place, you're gonna to have to get really, really good at one uh, of those areas or all of them if you're trying to do it yourself, which is exactly the problem that led us to think about subspecialization. That's so interesting. I love hearing about this. And I guess, you know, pivoting a little bit more, John, toward you and your specific leadership uh, style and, 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 you know, methodologies that you come to science with, I'm curious to know what some of your most hard-learned lessons have been and how they have informed what you do differently. At this stage? <laughs> That's a very good question. You know, I think that most of the hard learned lessons have been of the variety that, that uh, you know, most humans have, have had to learn for most of recorded time and maybe even before that. So, so in particular, I'm sort of thinking about the, you know, the influence of uncertainty or uncertain events, black swan events, uh, those kinds of things on business and on life, right? And, and we've, we've been through a couple of them at science in the last couple of years. Now, the, you know, the whole world went through one of them with COVID. And I, you know, I know for sure that there was not anybody in our space or in the larger SaaS community that had global pandemic on their, you know, 2020 contingency plans, right? Like if a global pandemic happens, you know, here's what we're going to do, right? I think, you know, I, I, I think I started as, a lot of leaders do somewhat naively thinking that you could plan for everything, that there was a, a spreadsheet based approach that would give you an answer, ideally in numbers about what to do and, and how to plan for what was going to come next. And 
you know, I've, I've learned, I think, the hard way, as most, most of us have to, that that's just not the way it works. And, and I think, you know, I got exposed a, a bunch of years ago, a, a bunch of years ago to uh, design thinking as an alternative to uh, sort of numbers-based analysis and analytical thinking. And it really resonated. And it's especially useful in, in situations that are black swan events or other kinds of uncertainties that manifest. Um, you know, this idea that we might need to be a little bit more flexible in our thinking when we consider what's going to happen next, we might uh, also need to fall back and take sort of a design or principle-based approach in responding to things that are, you know, catching us off guard. And by the way, that's something that, that, you know, that was a set of lessons I learned a long time ago that helped me personally uh, during COVID a lot. I, I'm unbelievably proud of the response that our company had, that science had to that, to that uh, particular event. And, Mostly because we took all of those ideas and we we actually put them into place while this thing was unfolding, and it, and it ended up delivering a much better result for us than other companies that that you know tried to analyze their way out of things. So, uh, so I, I would say that 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 that's probably a big leadership lesson. You know, uncertainty is is it's part of everything. I mean, it's it's not just a business reality; it's a it's a reality of, of being a human. And I think. Having, you know, there's that word resilience again, uh, developing resilience and developing some uh, approaches that help to navigate uncertainty, especially when it manifests, it, it has been really, really helpful as a leader. Yeah, it's really interesting. And at the risk of this podcast taking a turn into the way too personal, I've always admired your decision making and, and the frameworks that you've used going forward, especially when the going got toughest, which is really, I think, a testament to what you're saying, which is having principles in place with which to handle stressful situations, things where it doesn't always turn out exactly as designed. Maybe there's a metaphor in there for our entire business in sales development <laughs> for sure. how to navigate the rules of the road when things don't go your way. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, look, there's a lot of different, thank you for saying that, by the way. I mean, there are a lot of different ways to to put this. I, I think one of the things I like about the concepts we're talking about here is you know, every single wisdom tradition in the history of humanity has ultimately landed in the same place, which is life is uncertain, and there's only one way to deal with it, which is acceptance, right? That's kind of what kind of, I don't know, that's, that's the, the root uh, finding, you could say, of most of the wisdom traditions. You know, Buddhism, Buddhism has something to say about that. Stoicism has something to say about that. And everything in between has something to say about that. So, you know, I like ideas in terms like focus on the effort, not the outcome, because they sort of capture that and they can tell me what to do on a day-to-day -day basis. I mean, that, that's, that's one of the funny things about, you know, SDRing and about life is that, that, uh, when we talk about things like, you know, we're going to sell this huge deal, or this is where we're going to go. This is what our trajectory is going to look like over the next 12 months. Here's how sales, sales are going to stack. Here's where the pipeline is today and what we think we can convert. Um, that's great. But what do I do today when I get up? Like, what, what, what do I do? Like, what's, what's the plan? That's, that's what the future looks like over a 12 month period. But, but I need to know what to do when I wake up and my eyes open. And so some of these rules, I think, and, and philosophies can help inform that. You know, this idea of, of focusing on effort, not outcome, boy, that's a great one to grab onto when, when times are uncertain, when, when there's a, a pandemic or when a war breaks out and you know, you've got 400 employees in the line of fire. Outcomes are extremely uncertain in these situations. And, and so focusing on effort instead, wow, that's, 
it's a, it's a good framework and I think I'll use that. Right. Yeah, absolutely. You know, one of my favorite quotes, you know, that I carry with me personally is we don't see things the way they are. We see things the way we are. Yeah. And I wonder as a CEO at your level, I mean, you, you, I imagine you have to wear many hats and take on many perspectives to see things through the lens of your, you know, tech team, research, sales, marketing, all of the various departments that, that roll up to you. And I'm curious how you jump in and assume these different perspectives while also maintaining these core principles, core beliefs that you have. Well, you know, look, yeah, sure. I mean, I, I struggle with it just like anybody else does, you know, I'm sure. And and I think that's exactly right. I think one of the hardest things as a human, you know, not necessarily just as a CEO is how do you see things from somebody else's perspective, especially when you've got a strong opinion on the matter, right? You know, I, I think, it's it it's helpful to start by acknowledging that there is no truth with a capital T, at least on this world. In this world, like nothing we can see. I mean, maybe Plato's cave, right? That's kind of where that that type of thing happens. But but I think it's a good place to start. I I think our our CRO and the 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 guy who runs our service business unit, Michael Minus, says uh, the truth is in the middle. And I I really I like that, and I've actually adopted that as my own. I give him credit, but I but I say it a lot and. I think that is, you know, a, a great tool for what you're describing, which is I have this certain belief about this thing. This other person is saying something that's quite contrary to that. I wonder if I'm wrong too. Like I wonder, I wonder if I'm actually off a little bit. You know, one of my favorite TED talks of all time, this woman, and I, I don't remember her name. I wish I did because I could I could credit her, but she asked the audience, she said, What does it feel like to be deluded? What does it feel like to have a delusion? And it was, a, it was a question she actually posed and people raised their hand. She called on somebody and a guy said, oh, it feels awful. It's embarrassing. And somebody else raised their hand and said, I feel terrible. I feel like such a jerk. And somebody else said, oh, it's, it's, you know, it just gives this gross feeling in my stomach. And she said, okay, those are all great answers, but you're answering the wrong question. That's what it feels like when you find out that you're deluded. The problem with being deluded or being wrong is that it feels exactly the same as being right. If it didn't, you wouldn't be deluded, right? So um, that's kind of a big deal. And I think it's very helpful and germane to this. Like, I think I, you know, I try to go in to any of these conversations and say, there's a very good chance that I'm wrong about this. And let me just be open-minded about that. And let's see what the facts say. You know, this is, this is one area where one of our own core principles is extremely useful. That's data-driven decision-making. And a lot of people throw that term around. Not many people actually live it. But one of the really nice things about adhering to that and, and holding onto it tightly is it's okay to be wrong. Like I'm wrong all the time, every day. And uh, if the data tells me I'm wrong, that is wonderful. That's actually good news because now I have a new understanding that's closer to what's actually true and I can make better decisions as a result of that. So, you know, I, I think embracing that, you know, going into these kinds of conversations with a actually a belief that I'm probably at least a little bit wrong about this is, is pretty handy. That's good for going to conversations with, with one's spouse as well. I would say. <laughs> I was about to say, it sounds like divorcing from your ego is kind of like the most important overarching thing that, you know, people can work on here to, to be able to assume different perspectives, right? Like- well, it might be, I will say, you know, look, a, a lot of CEOs in particular 
have gone to great heights riding their ego the whole way. Like that's actually worked really well for them. And, and I'll be honest, like in my first CEO gig in my 20s, I was a little worried that that's what was going to be required of me, right? That I was going to need to, to, to do that and to be that guy. And I didn't really want to. And, and, you know, that was a moment where I, I got to sort of do the principles thing and, and do a real bit of soul searching and say, if that's what it takes, I'm not going to do it. You know, the good news has been there's absolutely no conflict between, you know, being a, a little uh, less egotistical, a little bit ego free. Not, I don't pretend to be anywhere near enlightened, but, but let's just say a little less ego and business success are completely compatible. So I have the perfect follow-up question to this exact topic, which is Peter Thiel's favorite interview question, which is what important truth do very few people agree with you on? Mm, that is such a good question. I, I've heard that posed by him. And uh, I think that's in, is that in zero to one? Did he, it did is. he write that in that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. There's an entire chapter on it. I think. Yeah. That's, that's a good question. So let me think about that. I think actually, you know what? I, I mean, this is sort of cheating because we've already talked about it a little bit, but I would say that it is the important truth is that sales can be an enormous service to the world. Yeah. You know, it, we, we, Eric, you and I have talked about this even recently that if you rank careers on the scale of, you know, most trustworthy to least and you have doctors and whoever else you have at the top and you have lawyers and firefighters, you have lawyers, politicians, and salespeople on the bottom, right? Yeah. And that, it, frankly, that's well-earned. Like that's actually, that's, you know, sales as a profession has come by that honestly, as it were. And I think the truth is that there is a very strong case to be made for responsible sales being an enormous service to the world. You know, you, you, there are a lot of ways to think about this. I mean, you, you may disagree that like uh, helping companies grow, build, you know, increase their revenues is, is a net good for the world. The way I think about it is um, as long as we have to work within the system we have, which is the global capitalist marketplace, a global capitalist system, that is an extremely good way to generate value that then does turn into um, strong positive outcomes for lots of other people other than you, the salesperson. You know, it helps in our case, it helps companies grow. And that means that they hire more people. And that means that those people have jobs and can pay for their kids to go to school. And that means that their customers, our company's customers, you know, save money and get to hire more people or generate more revenue and get to hire more people. So there's that virtuous aspect. And I, I think that most people just don't either think about it or don't believe it, um, believe it's possible. So I, like I said, I cheated there a little bit, but I, but I do think it was, yeah, a little bit, a little bit. I'll think of something else for later. Well, I, I'd love to kind of move this thought process, especially as philosophical as this discussion has been, which is delightful. What are some of the guiding hand philosophies for running an organization that now encompasses hundreds of SDRs in this space that we're, that we're in. Right. Yeah. So, so I think the first thing is, is exactly the, the Ray Dalio thing, which is you got to have something. So, you know, there, it just, it turns out that there's no way to write a playbook to encompass all of the things that an SDR or another employee here at the science is going to encounter on any given day. And even if you could, it would be, you know, 10,000 pages long, 
and it would take somebody like 30 minutes to find the entry like that described their situation and gave them the exact thing to say. And by then your prospect is long gone and you know doesn't care anymore, right? So so the only way to to approach anything at scale is through principles, is through, uh, you can call them a bunch of things. I mean, sometimes it's going to be, you know, I guess that the bureaucratic terminology is, you know, standard operating procedures or even values if you want to, so look, we have corporate values. When we first put them together, I was a little worried that we were going to Dilbert because that just felt kind of weird. Like, are we going to be that company that has these platitudes, you know, posted on the wall? It turns out that they are incredibly useful uh, guardrails for decision making. So, so I think that that's that's the biggest thing. It, it almost doesn't matter what they are. It matters that you have them then you can have something against which you can hold up any decision you have to make and just gut check it real quick. doesn't mean you're always going to make the right decision. doesn't mean that if, you know, a thousand or more employees, like we're always going to get it right, but at least we have a fighting chance in that case that maybe we didn't have before. So, you know, I, I think, and I, I think that actually shows, I think we see that routinely here at science. I think that, um, you know, one of the other kind of fallbacks, Eric, that you and I talk about all the time is what's the right thing to do here? Like that's the question that we ask probably daily in the face of unexpected questions that land on our desks or, or challenges or conflicts or whatever they might be. And that's that's a good guiding question. That's a pretty good place to start a discussion about how to deal with something coming out of left field. So, so I think that that ends up being, you know, the, the important thing is to have something and then what you choose is is obviously um, pretty important too. So in our case, at Science, a lot of it was already here, and it just needed to be codified. That was the interesting thing I think you know for me in coming in was there were there were already a bunch of people here, and they were already doing some great work. And one of the things that meant is that they actually already had shared values. Like no group really hangs together without some shared values. So whether they knew it or not, whether they'd written them down or not. There were shared values at the core of the uh, interactions that they had with one another and with with customers. So, you know, the first exercise was more, you know, anthropological than it was like company design. It was to go in and learn like what 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 is already here. Like, let's ask the questions and find out what what people already value that's actually held them together and allowed them to get to this level of, of success already. And for sure, let's not throw those out. We might need to you know, uh, smooth down the rough edges or, or suggest alternate terminology to it really resonate. But, you know, that was the exercise out of the gate. And that, that actually, interestingly enough, those have stood up, right? So those, those, what we discovered to be here that really held everything together and made it go in the early days are still driving us all forward today. And are still values that we look at and we you know we ask ourselves is this decision consistent with that value on a daily basis and that's that's actually pretty great absolutely and I, and and this this is kind of like a two-pronged question i think because on the one hand you are someone who i imagine gets cold called cold emailed cold <laughs> whatever whatever you have yes. yeah, every day I, I imagine and then on the other hand you're also at the helm of an organization that is home to hundreds of SDRs. So mm. I'm curious in your experience, you know, as a CEO at Science and, you know, before, 
What are some of the trends? What are some of the most meaningful and standout trends that you've seen within the SDR world? How has it changed? Sure. Well, I, you know, I think one of the changes is we've got a lot of new, new technology that enables a, a lot of new things, and that creates a lot of opportunities for more visibility, better understanding, better targeting, you know, better outcomes. Uh, you know, it can allow a single SDR to do more, be more effective. What's interesting is that while all of that is true, the basic rules haven't changed at all, right? So just because it's easy to send me an email and, I, and you can send you know, a lot more people like me emails in a very short period of time, doesn't mean it's going to be interesting to me to read it, right? So it's the it's the case that that targeting and all, all this all this kind of really really basic stuff is still what matters the most. Is this relevant to me? Like, why should I care? And by the way, if I do care, like I'm going to look at it and I'm going to read it and I'm going to respond because actually, lo and behold. I get emails, cold emails that are fantastic, that tell me something that I didn't know about a product or service that I hadn't heard of that actually I'm kind of interested in learning more about. Like that does happen on almost a daily basis for me. Um, now, I get 10 times the volume of that, of emails that aren't relevant to me, um, may not even have my name spelled right, <laughs> um, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And, and Which, so, so, let's be honest, Gerard, if you're messing that one up. Yeah. You're messing, or, or John, I mean, I don't know. I don't know, how would you? But, you know, people manage to. I also get, so I also get pitched so much lead generation services. Like, it's just amazing. It's just amazing. And by the way, I, my, my, my canned response to that every single time is, I'm super interested in this. We've done this in the past, and we've had a problem where people are always reaching out to direct competitors of ours. How do you guys avoid doing that? <laughs> and <laughs> usually, I get usually I get crickets at that point. Crickets. But, you know, the point is, like, I'm interested. I actually do want I do want to be reached out to with stuff that's that's useful to me, that's meaningful to me, that's relevant to me. Um, and here's the other funny thing. I know all the psychology, like I know how this all works and I am still not immune. If somebody sends me something that says, you know, Hey, I was in San Diego, the subject, like I was in San Diego or in Encinitas last summer, I'm going to open it. Right. And then if they say, are you close to Cardiff seaside market? Great selection of stuff there. Like you've got me, right? Like I am, I am all in. And, and hopefully the person was actually in Encinitas and knows Cardiff seaside market. But the point is, you know, all of these things, even though I know that they work and I know that they are ways to convince somebody to keep reading, work on me anyway, which is pretty interesting. And by the way, that's another that's another big plug for using those tools and tactics, like using this this magic for good rather than for ill, right? So so you can actually take that kind of knowledge and understanding and exploit it and be exploitative. And and that's something that we very strongly avoid. In fact, I will say, for the record, that's actually the reason that we don't do B2C right now, because the temptation in B2C is too high to use these tactics and techniques to twist somebody's arm into a sale. You know, it's an un I like to, I think of it as an unfair fight. It's a it's a it's a well armed organization corporation with an SDR with lots of good tactics against 
an individual, like against, you know, a grandma or against, you know, me, I mean, whoever, a consumer, and that, it's an unfair fight. So, so in, you know, in the B2B world, that's just not the way it works. It's nobody is going to be convinced in a single phone call to spend $20,000 on a CRM. That just doesn't happen. There, there's, it, there has to be real value for the sales sale to actually be consummated. And that, and the buyer is going to have a bunch of people on their side, able to truly evaluate if it's authentically valuable. So. Well, I think it would be interesting to get your perspective, not just on SDR tactics, but since we got you on the podcast and we're talking about enterprise sales development, where science goes, you know, we've got a number of new products kind of in the, in the pipeline. We've got a bunch of exciting announcements to come up on, but I'm curious what you see in the future on the road ahead on this journey. Yeah. So I'll give you two answers to that. So one of them is a little philosophical in keeping with the themes here in this, in this particular podcast. So, and then the other, and the other one's a little more practical about kind of where we're headed. So, so in the first one, you know, one of the, the real reasons that I got interested in science is to participate in something that's unfolding over this next couple of decades. That is a, is a pretty big deal. And, and that's the, the, disruption of the workforce with the rise of AI and automation, right? So we we see this in little ways from year to year, but on a 20-year time horizon, the the truth is everything changes. It's not a very good time right now today to be a taxi driver or to be a long-haul truck driver or, or a radiologist for that matter, because those are all professions or careers that are going to get massively disrupted by automation and by AI. Self-driving cars, you know, image recognition technology in the radiology side that that you know outperforms even the best radiologists, right? So those jobs aren't going to go away entirely, but they're going to get you know literally decimated, as in ten times reduction from where they are today. And the question is, where do all those people go? So one of the the, the standouts on the career track or career front in all the projections around what comes next in terms of growth is actually enterprise sales. And it's funny, but it, it, it makes some sense if you think about it. Like maybe we'll get to the point where two AIs are negotiating a price with one another and you know figuring out red lines and that kind of thing. It, 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 it's I don't know if I'm ready for that or if I, if I that might be my time to to just go move to a cabin in Montana and, and be done with things. You know, so so that may happen and, and presumably it will sometime. My kids will have to deal with that and I will not. It, it, the truth is, though, in the meantime. All sales, especially enterprise sales, are going to start first with one human talking to another human. And that's just the, that's just the reality. That's the constraint that we're that we're dealing with here for a while. And as a result, enterprise selling and enterprise prospecting, BDR SDR world is actually very well insulated. So science, you know, we want to actually train more SDRs, BDRs in the world than anybody else. That's what we, that's what we're in it to do here. So yes, we're going to grow this business and help clients and that kind of thing. But, but this, there's also this sort of bigger thing where I think we can help prepare workforce for this onslaught in a way like nobody else can. And that's um, a little aspirational, but it's well within our capabilities and within our sites. So, you know, what does that, what, what does that mean? And, and what, what, what's kind of happening in the short term? Well, our business is never not going to have BDRs and SDRs. 
it's always going to have people as uh, part of the equation for a lot of the reasons I just articulated. You know, there, there isn't a scenario where an AI reaches out to a human and has a conversation and, and books a meeting with them where the human doesn't feel pretty duped when they find out that it was an AI, right? That's just not, it's not in the cards in the near term. However, there are a lot of technologies, including AI, that are, that are uh, coming of age right now that can really, really help amplify the work of a talented SDR or BDR. So we're not just exploring those, but we're actually building those. And we're starting to, to deploy internally and we'll, we'll shortly be deploying externally a bunch of tools and technologies that really have been informed by the work that we've done over the last four or five years. I think it's fair to say that we have run more campaigns on the outbound front than any other company in the world at this point. That's a pretty good data set when you want to think about creating tools that might just give you a leg up on the next campaign that you run, right? You, you could do worse than, than looking at the, the, the summary information for thousands and thousands and thousands of enterprise prospecting campaigns that we've run over the years. Lots of, lots of cool technologies, lots of cool product stuff coming down the pipe. All of it thematically will be leveraging the science uh, assets in the form of this extremely high volume of extremely targeted outreach that we've done for a very long time. That is our, that is our sort of unique leverage point. I wouldn't say it's our unique value, but it's our, our unique leverage point in all this. That's something that allows us to do uh, uh, something nobody else can. So by falling, falling back on that history, that experience, and that data, uh, and by the way, all of the data that's getting created, like literally right now as we're sitting here, and turning that into something that is useful and actionable for our customers. All of the new tech that we're developing and deploying will have that theme at its core. So I think you'll see us, you know, you're not going to see us straying too far from the B2B sales world, but man, B2B sales is a big, big space. And uh, there's no question that we're going to be playing in it in an even bigger way in the coming months and years. What a perfect answer. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> Mic drop moment. Exactly. There it is. I love it. There it is. I love it. Yeah. Very cool. Well, <clears throat> I think that this has been a tour de force interview. How can our <laughs> listeners, if they want to get, you know, onto your calendar, so to speak, or into your inbox or learn more, connect with you, where where should they go? You know, I, I just just email me or find me on on Twitter or uh you know, any, any of the usual places, but John, J-O-H-N, not J-H-O-N, J-O-H-N, at science.com, no S in science. Yeah, email me. I'd, I'd love to hear from you. As long as you're yeah. not another lead gen vendor. As long as you're not, well, that, you'll, you know what, what response you're going to get now. So, but yeah, I'll tell you what, here's a great, here's a great in. Just tell me you heard, you, you heard me talk in the podcast. Like I will read that email for sure. Cause it's very personal, right? That's a, that's a good example of, of uh, referencing something in the real world, real world that's going to cause me to pay attention. But, but seriously, I, I'd love to. Well, then to put it at the end of the pod watch. too. That's it, right there, <laughs> right there. <laughs> Thanks so much for coming on, John. This was great. Of course, gosh, my pleasure. You guys are uh, amazing, and it's been a real joy to listen to everybody that's that's come before me. And yeah, it made me a little anxious because it was such it's such an incredible and impressive group of people that. 
that have been uh, guests here. It's really there's a lot of tough acts to follow. Like that was a real, a real honor, a real joy to be here. You add to the list, John. You you, well, thank you. you add to the impressive, uh, impressive folks we've had on. <laughs> awesome! I appreciate that. Thank you so much. Thank you.